We have experienced a, a revolution in the way that we view ourselves. In some ways it started back in the 1500s with a guy named Copernicus. Copernicus realized, thank you, sir, that we're not in fact the center of everything. The Copernican revolution when we realize that not everything revolves around the earth but in fact the earth is just one planet and several around a particular star and a network of stars known as a galaxy. This was mind bending for the world in the 1500s. And then you fast forward to about 1924, a man named Edwin Hubble began to peer out into space and he said, I see other things even beyond our galaxy. He coined it with the term nebulae, meaning there's just, there's stuff, there's stars, there's things going on beyond our galaxy, which once again caused people's brain to fold in going, really, could there be more? And then a a telescope bearing his name, the Hubble telescope was sent out into space and in 1995 it began to communicate back with us. And all of a sudden what we realize is there's not just our galaxy and stuff beyond the galaxy, but there's hundreds of galaxies as we learned in 1995. Hundreds of galaxies, each of those galaxies having about a billion stars in them. And then you fast forward another about 15 years and the Hubble telescope and the scientists working with it said, you know, we've, we've underestimated by a smidge. <laughs> not hundreds of galaxies, but a billion galaxies. One billion galaxies, each of them having about one billion stars. That means at that point they were estimating there were the same number of stars in the cosmos as there are grains of sand on the entire planet Earth. And we just happen to be revolving around one of those particular stars. And then a couple of years later, they said, oops. We've underestimated. Again, we think by a factor of 10, there is very likely one trillion galaxies and maybe more. Do you feel it? It's like we're slipping off the cosmic ledge. <laughs> like, oh. What started in this belief that we're at the center of everything, we're displaced from the center, and then all of a sudden, not just that, but now spiraling out into an endless cosmos revolving around one particular star and one particular galaxy in a span of trillions, all of a sudden, we feel really, really small. This morning, the opportunity that we have before us as we open the scriptures we're going to turn and we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And in many ways, this passage, which is a high water mark in our biblical Christolo Christology, our way of viewing Jesus. In many ways, I look at this passage like, like an opportunity to, to put our eye to the lens of the Christological Hubble telescope. However big Jesus has been in your sight to date... Whether you've been walking with him for years or maybe you're new to this whole thing, the invitation of this text is to say, maybe you've underestimated a little. Maybe, just maybe, he's bigger than we ever dared imagine. And in fact, what the scriptures are going to tell us is this, that you and I, if we are in Jesus, one day we will be welcomed into his presence and we will spend all of eternity 
investing all of our energy and thought to explore the horizons of his character and his beauty and his perfection, and we will never reach the outer bands. He's greater still. And the invitation for us as a community this morning as we peer into this this Christological Hubble telescope of Colossians 1, 15 to 23, is to feel ourselves slip off the cosmic ledge. To be lost in the wonder and the beauty of this King Jesus. Because as we do, if we see him clearly and grand as he is, we will see some really key things about our lives in a different perspective. And so it's with that invitation that I want you to pay attention to this text with me, starting in verse 15 of Colossians 1. Permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This means that everything in the physical world is moving towards chaos and towards death. But when we come to the word of God, we're in touch with something eternal, life-giving, and powerful. And we would be really, really wise to pay attention. Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, we're peering into Christological deep space in these verses. He grows larger and larger in our vision, and a few things begin to be in clearer perspective, clearer focus for us as this happens. The first that this passage is gonna show us is this, our purpose begins to become clear as we see Jesus for who he is, our purpose. In verse 15, Paul starts by saying he's the image of the invisible God. This word for image is icon. The people that would be reading this originally in Colossae would know an icon most pointedly by by virtue of the coins jingling in their pockets. The word that they would connect icon to most directly would be the picture that they saw on their copper coins of the Caesar. This icon made the Caesar visible because most people in that day would never actually see the king. There was no five o'clock news. There were no presidential election debates. They didn't see their leaders. They never laid eyes on them and they did not know what they looked like except for the fact that there was an icon 
Something making visible what is invisible to me. Oh, that's what the king of all of this land looks like. Jesus is that to God. God measuring trillions of galaxies with the span of his hand, dwelling in unapproachable light. No human being will ever be able to peer into the fullness of his glory. We cannot see God, but because of his commitment to being known, he took on flesh and he entered the world and he said, this is what God is like. What is invisible has been made visible. You see, he's, he is the image of the invisible God. And then it says the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. What this does not mean is that Jesus used to not exist and then he started to exist. Because we know that Jesus is part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know from John 1 and other places that he has existed in eternity past with the Father and the Spirit. So what does it mean that he's the firstborn of all creation? What it means is that like the firstborn is preeminent and will inherit everything, Jesus, as the Abraham Kuyper, the theologian, famously said, Jesus stands at the center of the cosmos with his hands extended, saying over every square inch, mine. It's all mine. That's what it means that he's the firstborn of all creation. It means that he will inherit it all. It's his rightfully. Jesus makes God visible while saying, in fact, I will inherit it all. It's all mine. And then this all builds to this statement, this grounds clause that we read in verse 16. It says, for, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He starts by saying all things, he finishes by saying all things, and then he gives us a long list just to make sure that he knows we mean all things. He says all things, all things, and by the way, I mean visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things, all, all. did I say all? It was all created through him and for him. That is a purpose statement. It exists for the one that will inherit it all. Now, I'm not like a Mr. Fix-It, much to my wife's chagrin. We've been married for 14 years and she's just kind of settled into this place of I know that he's never gonna be a tool guy. And uh, there's this moment a couple of years back where my, my edger and weed eater broke and uh, I hadn't budgeted for it to break. We weren't ready to go buy a new one. And so we were just gonna kind of make do for a little while. So I'd mow the lawn each Saturday and do my best to kind of tend to the edges. And, but without fail, you would imagine that the grass started to grow out over the driveway and over the curb. It didn't look real great. I'll, I'll give my wife that. She was graciously and, gener and, and kind of gently saying, hey, we really probably ought to do something about that edger, huh? And I'd say, yeah, we really ought to. But then week after week, I didn't do it. So several of these weeks compiled until one Saturday morning, I was finishing mowing, I was putting the mower away, and I saw my wife walk out of the front doors with a pair of scissors. Yeah. I thought, oh no. Um, and she went over and she got on her hands and knees and she started trimming the grass along the curb. And so I went inside and I got a pair of scissors and I came out. <laughs> 
and I got down on my hands and knees, and together we trimmed our yard with two pairs of scissors. Uh, no doubt our neighbors were like, the, the Morrises have lost it. I don't know what's going on over there. You know, and that, that process was kind of a painful one. We, both of our hands would start cramping because that's not what scissors were created for. You know, you're working, so we'd switch from hand to hand. And the scissors were dull by the time it was done. The job was pretty ragged, not very well completed. We hacked it out. We got something done. But at the end, I thought, okay, I'm going to buy an edger, you know? <laughs> In many ways... Until we see Jesus gloriously and profoundly over all, saying it's all for me, that when he says all things were created for me, purpose statement, that includes you and me. We're part of the created order. As long as we live for anything smaller, less glorious, less majestic, We are, in essence, spending our lives on our hands and knees, edging with a pair of scissors. When we make our lives about, I'm going to build a great career and a great family, and I'm going to amass a certain amount of wealth and have enough comfort, and I'm going to to carve out my life, and I'm going to finally have good, clear purpose in the world. If we have made our lives just about these small things on this little pebble of sand that's spiraling off in the cosmos, one of eight billion people coursing through and going, this is what it's all about, we are missing it. It will exhaust and dull you just like that journey with the scissors. We will say, I don't in fact think this is what I was built for ultimately. It's part of it, but until it finds its home fully in the glory and the majesty of the one that stands over it all, our purpose will be cloudy and unsatisfying. You see, The first thing that becomes clear is our purpose. We are actually made to unfold into the eternal. And until we see Jesus fully and completely for who he is, standing over the entirety of the trillion galaxies and say, I was made for your glory and I will only find home when I start to live towards that end, it is not until we experience that that we'll understand our purpose, what we were made for. But it's not just our purpose, it's our prospects that begin to become clear. What we can have hope for, what we can see into the future, our prospects. You see, in verse 17 and following, it says this, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is an interesting note. He didn't just create everything and he's not just standing gloriously over it all waiting to inherit it, he's actively sustaining it. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we read that it's by the power of his word that he is sustaining creation. What this means is that this morning when you woke up in your bed and your eyes opened and you went, that was because God willed it. You can't make yourself wake up breathing. The cosmos doesn't hold together. The galaxy doesn't continue to hold together unless this preeminent one sustains it. He makes a decision to will it into perpetual existence. (laughs) Do you feel yourself slipping off the cosmic ledge with me? 
Like there's part of me that I think in my folly boils Jesus down to like the bearded rabbi carpenter that set a great example for me. It's like, isn't he great? I want to pal around with him. And certainly he's made himself accessible in that way, but we can miss this fact that here he is. He is sustaining the whole of the created order. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What he's saying here is he didn't just create and sustain everything, he's going to recreate everything. That's why he's the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. Eternity has broken in. That's why we're gonna celebrate next weekend on Easter Sunday, the fact that resurrection is real. Life on the other side of the grave is real and an option because eternity has broken in and he is reworking the created order. The, the order that has been marred by sin and death and sadness, he is reworking and remaking. And then as an exclamation point, as he's painting this picture of our prospects and our hopes for the future, Paul says this, he says in verse 19, and he is full of God. Is that what he said? That would be an amazing statement at this point that he is filled with the divine. But interestingly, that's not what Paul said. Filled with the fullness of God. Ooh, that would be Paul doubling down, right? If he said, he's full of God, no, no, he's full of the fullness of God, but that's also not what he said. He said he was filled with all the fullness of God. And he didn't just say that. He said all the fullness of God was pleased or delighted to dwell in him. There's a certain sense in which linguistically Paul is grasping at everything, trying to help us understand however big he's been, been in your vision, he's got to be bigger. Because all the fullness of the God that measures the trillions of galaxies by the span of his hand reside in the frame of Jesus. You know, there's a story that's told. Nobody's really sure who told it originally. Some have, have said it came from the Dalai Lama, some from others, that it's the story of these blind men and an elephant. Have you heard this story? There's blind men that are led in and there's an elephant standing there and they begin to feel around on this elephant and they're, they're arguing about what is an elephant like. The blind man standing at the back of the elephant holding onto his tail says an elephant is like a snake. And then there's another blind man who has his arms around the leg of the elephant and saying, no, 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 it's like the trunk of a tree. That's what an elephant is. And another one who has his hands on the elephant's belly is saying, an elephant is like an enormous boulder. And then they begin to argue about what an elephant is like. So says the Dalai Lama and others that this is the journey of religion and faith in the world. That all the different faiths and religious systems have some piece of truth about God and they're clinging to it and proclaiming this is what God is like, but it's only altogether that we could see God clearly. You know, this is an interesting notion, but it leaves us with a gaping chasm on the other side of death. Because we're left wondering if all we've got is a very small sliver of a perspective of who this God is, what extends out into the unknown eternal is this, this grand question, this mystery. If, if all I've ever had is this little piece of him, how can I have any confidence? What are my prospects truly in the world? 
what this text is saying is we no longer have to wonder. What this verse just said is the entire elephant walked into the room and said, look and see all of me. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the frame of Jesus. If you've ever wondered what the character of God is like, you can look into the face of Jesus and say, ah, there he is. No longer groping about in the dark, arguing about this piece or that, but seeing the fullness of his character in and through the person and the work of Jesus. What this means is that we can have utter and complete confidence about what the future holds, about what God is like, about what awaits us. You see, when we see Jesus clearly through the lens of this Christological Hubble telescope, all of a sudden we say, ah, I understand my purpose and I understand my prospects, but then very next thing is we understand our plight. Right on the tail end of saying all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. This is what Paul says in verse 20 and after. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Reconciliation means that there's, there's a problem. There needs to be a reunification. Something is going on here. And it says all things whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, isn't this interesting that what he begins to say is peace is needed. Reconciliation is needed. And the reason is because we have been hostile. We have been alienated in mind. We have been doing evil deeds. In essence, he has just painted this picture of a grand king who stands with all authority over all the cosmos. And then he says, and by the way, do you know what your role and mine has been? We have been insurrectionists. We have said, we think there ought to be another king and it ought to be me. We have said there should be someone on the throne, but I think it should be me. This is what comes naturally to us as human beings. I have spent a good portion of my life as one of eight billion people walking around on this particular grain of sand, spiraling in the midst of a trillion galaxies. And I've been walking around going, you know, the gray matter between my ears, I really think I got this thing figured out. I've been thinking about it. I figured it all out and I know better. I just think ultimately to submit my will to God's word and God's ways, that sounds a bit cumbersome and I think I kind of have this thing figured out. Thank you very much. The fact that the king overall says, I have intentions for your thoughts and your words and your sexuality and your dollars and everything that you are because by the way, I stand in the center of it all and say, it's all rightfully mine and here I am like a little rebellious child saying, I think I know better. It's only as I see him in all of his glory that I begin, can begin to finally recognize the utter folly of my heart and the devastation of our plight. We need help. 
We need reconciliation. We need peace because right now there is bad blood between the one who has all authority and this rebellious, foolish heart. You see, our plight as human beings is devastating because we have refused to see him in all of his beauty and his glory. But beautifully, this one who has shown us our purpose and our prospects and our plight also illumines for us our peace. Did you hear it in the text? He has illumined for us our peace. He said once again in verse verse 20 that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now this is such a curious verse. It's like a a divine whodunit. It's a mystery that leaves us scratching our heads because what Paul has just said is that this Jesus has such cosmic authority that here he is saying, it's all mine. I have made the invisible God visible. I actually have ownership and power and beauty and glory that surpasses everything you've ever dreamed or imagined. And by the way, he ended up pinned naked and bleeding on a tree. I go, how is that possible? How is that possible? This is the reality that in our world, power corrupts. Everyone who's been entrusted with a throne and unmitigated power, it ends up corrupting because that power gets leveraged for the good of the one on the throne. We see it time and time and time and time and time again throughout history. We could watch the news tonight and hear stories of it around the globe, the way that people suffer because the ones in power have turned the power in on themselves. This King Jesus has delivered reconciliation, peace, abundant life, and he's done it by leveraging all the power that was his and laying it down for your good. He of all people in the course of human history deserves to be on the throne. Who else are you going to usher to the throne of your life? Have you ever heard of someone who had perfect power but was made entirely weak for the good of the people that he loved and came to serve? You see, Jesus, as he bled and died, was paying for your rebellion and mine. All the times and ways that we have said we know better, he made reconciliation by the blood of the cross, and what it tells us is that he now can present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the good news, that a whole host of insurrectionists and rebellious children could be welcomed into the family, holy and blameless, presented before God. He finishes in verse 23 by saying this, if indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The invitation this morning is simple. There's not all these practical steps to this passage. What it is, is behold Jesus. See him afresh. If you are new to this whole experience, 
If maybe a friend brought you this morning, if you're unclear where you stand with Jesus, let me say this. It is the single most important question to settle in your life. Who is this Jesus? If the tomb was in fact empty, which I think history upholds in the most powerful of ways, then eternity has broken in. The king is on the throne. He has all glory and we need to rightly usher him into the throne of our hearts. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, I would invite you this week as you prepare your heart to celebrate fully this week. As you prepare for Good Friday, remembering the power and the beauty of the cross, and as you prepare for Sunday morning, remembering that the tomb is empty, would you prepare your heart by looking more fully into the face of Jesus than you ever have? Running to him, and it says here, if indeed you stay steadfast in your faith, this means waking up morning after morning and entrusting over again, saying, I want you to direct my hands, my feet, my words, because you are the true king that is to be trusted on the throne. This is where we will find our purpose. We will know that our prospects are secure and that even in the midst of our plight, we have peace. Amen. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, you are bigger and more glorious than I've ever dared imagine. We are a people that are prone to wander, prone to forget. We this week will attempt to make our lives about a hundred other lesser things. And we will feel cramped and dull and exhausted when we do. Would you forgive us and continue to draw us back to your glory and your goodness and your majesty such that we could finally find our true home in you. I pray that we would be a group of men and women this day that live with appropriate cosmic awe at the foot of King Jesus. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for the opportunity to come together as a family and to celebrate you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.